Now, yesterday, I told you that uh, three uh, sources have influenced me in my philosophy of preaching. Uh, I've been a preacher, and I consider myself first and foremost to be a preacher. I, I wear many hats, but I'm first and foremost a preacher and a pastor. Uh, I, I always think I preach best in my own congregation among those that I know and, and, and love and share life with. Uh, my first influence, as I said yesterday, was uh, Spurgeon. And uh, in my early days, especially in the first 10 years of ministry, I doubt that I preached a sermon without consulting Spurgeon, typically at the end of my preparation. And I would often find uh, a text, and sometimes there were two or three sermons on the same text uh, in Spurgeon, and I would read his sermons and Sometimes most of it would, would, would not sort of gel with me, but then there was one paragraph, uh, one point that I had completely missed. And uh, I can't tell you the number of times uh, Spurgeon uh, helped me a lot in preaching. I, I had a, a, a sort of uh, Protestant um, moment yesterday when I went into the Spurgeon uh, library uh, and uh, the uh, the relics, the holy relics, uh, w- w- was was quite something. I, I sent pictures to lots of my friends who have not been here. Uh, it's an outstanding uh, place, and just to see the quality uh, of Spurgeon's uh, library and from his writings and preaching, you you know that he had read all of those books. Uh, and made notes uh, on those books and uh, just how important books were and for me still are uh, for all-round preaching. The second uh, person, as I said yesterday, was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I I regard him, of course, he was Welsh, so you would expect me to regard him as the best preacher of the 20th century. He had a profound ministry at Westminster Chapel in London uh, for 40 years or more. Uh, and I, I doubt there was any preacher who preached with such uh, eloquence and profundity. Uh, I remember listening to him as a young student uh, sitting in the balcony, the first time I ever met him. Uh, and I could, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a euphemism, but the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. I was just waiting for the next word, the next sentence uh, to come out. And then thirdly, uh, for me, as as a template as to what preaching uh, really is, uh, is the statement on preaching in the Directory for Public Worship produced by the Westminster Divines in 1645. And it epitomizes... Uh, Reformation and post-Reformation preaching, and particularly, as we'll see in a minute, uh, the profound influence of uh, William Perkins, uh, who was born in 1558 and died in 1602, uh, who had a very, very profound uh, impact on uh, preachers uh, who trained in the late 16th uh, century. And his influence uh, dominates 
uh, that little track, that little, that little section in the directory for uh, public worship. Now, I want us to pick up today on uh, the method of biblical preaching, the method of biblical preaching. And again, what the directory gives us are general statements and not specific statements. Uh, one of the things that it says is that all fruitful preaching combines uh, light and heat, light and heat. Uh, think of John the Baptist as a preacher. Uh, he was a bright and shining light. It, it, it wasn't just that John the Baptist was a good preacher, a sound expositor uh, of the Old Testament scriptures, but there was something about him as a person that the word that he preached transformed him, transformed his mind to be sure, but transformed his very personality, transformed his affections. He was, he was captivated by the word of God. Jim Packer uh, famously spoke of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, as logic on fire. And if you've ever listened to uh, Lloyd-Jones' preaching, and you can do so free online, uh, the MLJ Trust, there are uh, several thousand sermons that you can just listen to or download uh, free of charge. And, and you owe yourself at least one uh, attempt at listening to him. And I think if you listen to him once, you will be hooked uh, immediately. Uh, he had a, a distinctive voice. He began his sermons uh, very low key uh, with, with, with little emotion. He would lay out the data. He thought logically one sentence followed the other. But by the time you were about three quarters of the way into the sermon, you knew this was heading for a climax. It was heading for some kind of peroration, and his, his, his voice would begin to change. He preached with very little notes, so, so this, this wasn't something uh, that, he, that he artificially produced. It was the captivation of his whole person uh, by the Word of God. I think of the text in 2 Corinthians 4.2, where Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, it's very easy to lose heart in ministry. Um, God's people can behave badly. Uh, there are times in our lives when we are captive to our own emotions. There are trials and tribulations, some of them personal, some of them familial, uh, that have probably no place in the pulpit, but they can weigh you down. Uh, the care for all the churches, there are a number of reasons why uh, you could lose heart. But when you lose heart, you must keep going. I remember 10 years or so into ministry, I, f I felt my preaching was lackluster. It, it, it didn't have the fire. I, I didn't feel the presence of God when I was preaching, and I... I called uh, a very mature and, and well-known preacher and asked him, and he says, you just have to keep going. Keep going until the fire burns again by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhand ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, that's a very important statement about preaching, and he uses the Greek word phanerosis, the open statement of the truth. Phanerosis is a Greek word that's like a bud that opens up into a flower that blossoms with extraordinary beauty. And I think that what Paul is saying, you can engage in cunning. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said that he could fill... um, Westminster Chapel, simply by announcing the week before that he would preach in his swimming trunks the next week. And he he guaranteed that the place would be full. You You can do underhand things, but what you need to do is to trust the Scripture to do its work by the power of the Holy Spirit. Allow the Scriptures to be opened up, phanerosis, to display itself in all of its beauty, in all of its splendor, in all of its magnificence. That word phanerosis is used uh, by Stephen in his sermon in Acts 7 about the incident when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He was hidden, but he disclosed his identity to his brothers. And when you're preaching, when you're opening up the Word of God, engaging in grammatical, historical exegesis, bringing the Word of God to bear upon yourself and the people. There is an open manifestation of the truth. It's the idea of unveiling something like a diamond and and holding it up to the light and allowing each facet of that diamond to reflect something of the beauty of the Word of God. Hold it up and make it burn and draw attention to its beauty because the Word of God is the most attractive thing in all the world. Now, there's a trap here, I think, that truth only appeals to the mind. And so the directory for the public worship of God borrows heavily here on the work of William Perkins. William Perkins was a Puritan. He preached and taught theology at Cambridge University. If you were heading for the ministry in the late 1500s in England, Uh, There were only two places you could go to. One was Oxford and one was Cambridge. And if you went to Cambridge, you had uh, Calvinism with a capital C. Uh, Perkins was a high Calvinist. Uh, I I don't have time to explain it now, but he was a supralapsarian with a capital S. He wrote a 850, 900-page book uh, on uh, the topic. Uh, He was first and foremost a preacher, and he wrote a book called then The Art of Prophesying. It has been uh, brought up to date in modern English and republished uh, in recent years with a a slightly different title. But 
The Art of Prophesying was the first book on homiletics, I think, ever to have been published. And one of the things that Perkins drew attention to, granted using 16th century Puritan faculty psychology, um, how the Word of God appeals both to the mind and to the will and to the affections and to the whole tenor of the Christian life. And he brings to bear the idea of what the application of Scripture looks like. So he first of all, um, he first of all exegetes uh, the congregation. It's important to exegete the Word of God, but it's also important to exegete the congregation. What kind of people do you have in the congregation? And remember, this is the late uh, 1500s. Uh, church attendance was mandatory. Uh, you could be fined. You could be imprisoned uh, for, in, for frequent non-attendance at church. That's not our society for sure. I would love to experience that just for a few weeks, just to see what it was like. Um, I would love to be able to call someone and say, look, you haven't been in church in two weeks and if you're not there next week, you're going to prison for a week. That would be, that would be extraordinary. But uh, there, were, there were in Perkins' congregation hardened people. Not just unconverted people, but hardened people who'd heard the gospel over and over and over, but they'd become hardened to it. They developed spiritual calluses so that the Word of God simply bounced off them. And you'll have them in your congregation. There'll be teenagers with body language up in the gallery that says, I'm only here because my parents make me come. But as soon as I'm 18, I will no longer be here. What's, what's the application to them? How do you address them? How do you make the Word of God appeal to them. Or you may have those who are near the kingdom of God, but they're not yet in the kingdom of God. They're close, but they're not yet converted. They're searching. Their lives are out of sorts. They have no understanding of their true identity or their true calling. God has been convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. They have a burden on their back. They may not even be sure what the nature of that burden is, but you have to pull them in. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God draws them, attracts them, pulls them across that line and into the kingdom of God. You've got Young converts, college students who've found Christ, and they're all on fire. They have zeal, but not according to knowledge. They know very little, but they have zeal. They have commitment. They're on fire. And you, you don't want to put that fire out. You just want to give them a little more wisdom. Wisdom. 
You've got mature converts. Those who've seen it all. And they've reached that, that stage in the Christian life in their mid-40s or early 50s. And nothing is fresh to them anymore. They know stuff. They know theology. They, they know the scripture. They, they, they are frequent in attendance at church, but they have knowledge, but little zeal. Perhaps their love has grown cold. They're so acquainted with it that they've become insensitive. It doesn't thrill them anymore. And how do you preach to bring alive that sense of joy, that sense of thrill, that sense of commitment, excitement that they had 10, 20 years ago? You've got folk in the congregation who can barely think, who can barely put two feet in front of another because trials have come. Cancer has entered their door. Bereavement has come. Ill health has come and they've lost their job and all of their dreams and their hopes and their aspirations have come crashing down. What is, what is the application of this text to them? What about those who have begun to doubt? And it can happen at any age. It can happen among the most mature Christians that something has happened. And they've begun to doubt. They've begun to doubt the authority of the Word of God. They've begun to doubt whether or not they're Christians. Maybe, maybe regret because of the past, maybe because of some past failure that continues to haunt them. And, and I'm saying that each, each application will be different to each of those categories. And it might have a little difference whether they are hardened or whether they are near the kingdom or whether they are recent converts or whether they are mature converts. It's what we sometimes call discriminatory application. Now for me, once I, have, once I have an outline, if I have three or four points that seem to do justice to the text, I, I, may, I may rearrange the order of those that isn't the order of the text because I want one of them to be climactic. And, and sometimes the climax isn't at the end of the text. It may be in the center of the text. So I, I want to make sure that the sermon ends well. So but once I have that outline, once I know I have three or four points, I, I can preach that sermon in five minutes' time. It may not be the best sermon in the world, but it'll be a sermon, and it'll do justice to the text. But it needs more than that. It needs application. And and for me, application is something I work on not at my desk. Application is something that I work on not by having 28 commentaries before me. 
Application is something that I do when I'm, when I'm walking my dogs. And I have a park nearby, Sesquicentennial Park, with lots of trails, and, and I'll take my dogs on a walk, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the sermon. And I'm thinking about, how do I apply this to those up in the balcony who sit right in the back where the lighting is bad, I can't see their faces, they're sitting there probably for a reason, but I need to address them. And to address them without, without being offensive, to address them winsomely, to address them in a way that draws them to Christ again, draws them to the power of the Word of God, lights the fire by the Holy Spirit. So this is Perkins. And you, you find that emphasis on discriminatory application in um, the directory for the public worship of God. And he says there are basically seven ways in which application should be made in keeping with seven different spiritual conditions. It includes the hard heart, ignorant, and unteachable. And he says, you must, you must stress the law so that the pedagogic work of the law, the convicting work of the law, comes down and brings them to their knees. The Puritans, of course, talked about law work. And you can do this in a, in a direction that leads in a, in a bad direction, for sure. But the sensitive soul may need something else, but the hardened soul needs to hear the authority of God's law and that one day they must give an account. Ignorant and unteachable. Then, then the seeker, teachable but ignorant. They have knowledge, but they don't yet have repentance. They feel themselves empty. There's a German word that the 19th century German romantic poets used, Sensucht. There's a similar word in Welsh, Hiraith. And it, it's hard to translate into English, but it means longing. A deep-seated longing. A longing for identity. A longing for purpose. A longing to know the God who made us and who can make us whole again in Jesus Christ. And so for the seeker, you, you, you must make the gospel, you must make Jesus the most attractive person that they have ever encountered and to woo them that in relationship with Jesus, they will be made whole, they will experience fullness. They will, in Paul's words in Colossians, they will be complete in Jesus Christ. Presbyterians are often accused of, of not being good at doing invitations. I, I'll take that on the chin. But no sermon must go by without inviting the lost to come to Jesus Christ. We can 
We can disagree about whether they need to walk the aisle or, or, or whatever, but no sermon, no opportunity should pass without inviting sinners to come and believe and trust in Jesus Christ and experience that rebirth and that wholeness and that fullness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Perkins went on to talk about the converted, and he divided the converted into three um, general categories, young believers who are on fire, but not according to knowledge, mature believers who have knowledge, but no fire that needs to be rekindled, and the backslider who needs admonition to be sure, but gentle and winsome, and to appeal to their better knowledge, to mortify the deeds of the flesh in order that they might live, to remind them of the love that they once knew and that Jesus' arms are wide open to receive them once again. What kind of application? And here again, the directory has been helpful for me to think about not just one application, and too many sermons leave application to the last five minutes. You, know, you, you, you look at the clock and you think, I, I, let me say a quick word about application. And that's, that's deadly. The whole sermon is application. Truth is application. It's application to the mind. Truth is in order to godliness. So in order to produce godliness, you need the truth. And you need to understand the truth. And you need to know what the consequences of the truth are. So there's doctrinal application. You need to, and, and, and here it depends on how mature your congregation is. But I think Robert Murray McShane once said, this is the man in Scotland, in Dundee, who died when he was 28, and he said, your congregation will take anything from you so long as they think you love them. It's a great word. You may have something really difficult to say, but so long as they think that you love them and that what you're saying is for their good. Now, that's a, that's a relationship that comes with years. It, it, they may not appreciate that in the first year or in the first five years, but if you've been there 10 years or 15 years and you've been in their homes and you've been with them when sickness has come and you've been there at the time of a funeral and you've texted them uh, when you've heard that something has happened, and I've discovered in my late years that the ministry of texting is absolutely powerful. You, you write a couple of sentences and, and you, you, you add on a, a Bible verse. And I can't tell you the number of people who will say to me, thanks for that text. It was nothing. It cost me almost nothing. But it meant the world to them because they felt that you loved them and that you cared for them. You might have been on the golf course when you did this, but somebody said, have you heard about so-and-so? I don't play golf, so I, I wouldn't be on the golf course, but, but you know what I mean. It, it, it's, it's the principle um, 
that some truths are, are hard. What ought believers to believe? And the answer to that is the whole counsel of God. The totality of Scripture. You counter error by expo- expounding the truth. And you must convince them that they must believe it because it's good for them. My mother had all kinds of potions when I was young. This is in the dark ages now. One of the potions was cod liver oil. It it was revolting then, and I, I think it would be even more revolting to me now. But she would apply it, and she would say, this is going to be good for you. And because she loved me, and I knew that she loved me, I... I would swallow it. The taste was awful, but I knew that she, that she loved me. And when she said, this is going to be good for you, I swallowed it. On the other side of doctrinal application is reproving application. To show the believer what they are not to believe. Oh, we need to do so much of that in our society, in our culture. So many false doctrines, so many false narratives. But make sure that you don't weigh down your sermon so that everything is negative. Make sure that there are positive things in your sermon too. Now, let me say something quickly about the style of preaching. And let me reduce what... The directory says under seven headings to just a a couple of headings. First of all, seriously. Seriously. Seriously in preparation. You you must set apart time. Each, Each person can do that for himself. For me, in my early days, I had three sermons a week to prepare. So I set apart three mornings. Unless there was a dire emergency and it was a time before cell phones and texts that could distract you, uh, or the internet for that matter, um, I set apart the mornings to prepare those three sermons. Preaching is a weighty business. It has gravitas to it. It's the most profound thing that you will ever do. And you um, you must be serious about it. Secondly, humble. Like Jesus, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That's the shape of Jesus' likeness, to be humble, to put others first. Lovingly. I listened to a preacher once. 35 years ago, he was always angry. Even when he was preaching on the love of God, he was angry. Don't you know that God loves you? (laughs) I think there were issues in his personal life, in his marital life, and he brought them to the pulpit. Preach with love in your hearts. Love for sinners. Love for your congregation. My great aim 
John Newton said, is to convey the impression that I really mean to do them good. My great aim is to convey the impression that I really mean to do them good. Well, there's a whole lot more about preaching. I wanted to say something about Christ-centered preaching and gospel-centered preaching. I don't have time for that this morning. I think the overall impression that I would like to leave after a lengthy period of ministry in a congregation is that this is a congregation that loves the Lord Jesus and finds him beautiful. They love the gospel, the old, old story, and they never get tired of it. They understand that this is the most important and most precious thing in all the world, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In God's mercy, you have a lifetime ahead of you to preach Christ, to be a preacher, to be an ambassador for the gospel, and as someone on the other end of that tale, it has been the most extraordinary blessing in, in all of my life. I can't imagine, I can't imagine wanting to do anything else. I, I tinkered for one year with being a math teacher at a high school because I'm a math major. I would rather be a people greeter in Walmart than to be a math teacher in a high school. I count myself privileged beyond measure that God made me a preacher. And may he make you to be preachers, good preachers, great preachers, successful preachers, bringing in the lost into his kingdom and growing his people into maturity, preparing them for eternity and a life with Christ forever.